The follow-up is simple. Ask a question, listen to the answer, then follow up. I'm your host, Noah Kozlov. Enjoy. The follow-up today is with Ian Eagle, one of my favorites on the air, someone I've looked up to for a long time off the air. He's a play-by-play announcer for CBS Sports, Westwood One Radio, the Brooklyn Nets, Tennis Channel. Ian, when was the last time you had real nerves before a broadcast? Amazing that you can pinpoint an exact date with this question, but it was November 3rd, 1995. That was my first television broadcast. The New Jersey Nets were in Toronto at Sky Dome to take on the Raptors. First game in Toronto Raptors history. And we were staying at the hotel that was actually inside Sky Dome, Sky Dome Hotel. And I woke up at like three in the morning, obviously the morning of the game, and I could not fall back to sleep. My mind was racing. Uh, Television was new to me. I was a radio guy. It was a leap of faith that Sports Channel had at that point. And I was just going over all the scenarios in my head, just thinking about not vomiting on the air. That was my (laughs) first priority at, at that point. And then... You know, went to lunch that day, had a production meeting, got courtside. I'm working with the great Bill Raftery, the one and only. And I must say, whatever fears and concerns that I had leading up to it were basically assuaged at that point because Bill was next to me and everything felt right. But leading up to it that morning and the little sleep the night before, uh, there, there was legitimate fear of what did I get myself into, and am I ready for this? Do you remember standing in front of a mirror in the hotel room practicing, or <laughs> how long it took you to do your hair? Yeah, I, are you in my head right now? No, because <laughs> that's exactly what happened when I woke up at at three in the morning. Uh, and I couldn't fall back asleep. I ended up somehow in the bathroom, and I was. I was like staring into the mirror, maybe even grab my brush at some point to do a mock open Mm -hmm. and go through in my mind what we were going to talk about and how we were going to lead into it. And it wasn't just that it was my first television broadcast. It was the fact that it was the first game in this franchise's history. I just thought to myself, someone is going to document this, right? (laughs) Uh, But yes, uh, the hair... Uh, the hair was perfect. I, I feel like the hair was impeccable. I would have to get video of the actual stand-up, but uh, I believe that that was not an issue. The hair has always stood up well, fortunately. <laughs> and you you were 25 at the time? Yeah. Um, still very young and still trying to figure all of this out. I had done one radio season at that point and made the move to television. And, and truly, uh, little did I know at that point, Bill Raftery was probably the the guide that I didn't even know I had. And it's not as if he would sit me down and tell me about the business or explain his philosophy, just being around him, seeing how he treated people, watching how he conducted himself on the air, off the air, the amount of fun that he had, uh, the fact that the lines began to blur between our off-air conversations and our on-air conversations I realized that, hey, this TV thing isn't that complicated. Be authentic. Be yourself. When the red light goes on, don't turn into something else. 
And Bill really had a lot to do with that because that's just how he leads his life. And he still does it, by the way, the same exact way. All of these years later, nearly 25 years, nothing has changed. And he gave me a roadmap in how to do this and how to be good at it in many ways. You ever think about what it would have been like if Bill wasn't your guy that first game? I think it would have been different. Uh, there's no doubt. Uh, I think I think my career would be different. Uh, I think my point of view and perspective on how I attack this job, my methodology would be completely different. Uh, that's the random parts of life that you can't really put your finger on, the mysteries of why things happen the way that they happen. Uh, the fact that I ended up in that job next to Bill Raftery, eventually at CBS working with Bill Raftery on college games. Uh, That is not just a happenstance. I was really fortunate. And the other part of the equation is you have to take advantage of it. Uh, That opportunity came my way and I realized it was a big opportunity. That's probably why I, I was feeling the way that I was feeling. I understood how much was at stake for my career and at a young age, uh, how this could possibly set me up to do this in my life. So uh, really fortunate that I was in that spot at that time in my life with the people around me. And as years went on, I've probably gained even more uh, real admiration for uh, the situation that I was put in and the fact that it was uh, Bill Raftery that was sitting next to me that day. And the the chemistry is evident with you, too. The chemistry is evident with you and Dan Fouts and any of the other analysts that you work with on a consistent basis. How do you make it work with someone that you know you're only working with once or it's the very first time you're going to be working with somebody and you don't know when the next time would be? Yeah, no, early in my career, even before I got the net job, I was assigned Jets pre and post game in 1993 on WFA and radio. It had just gotten the rights to the Jets broadcast. And it was a big deal. FAN was moving into a whole new arena. They were the radio station of the Mets, but this was different. This was something they went out and uh, they really pushed for football. They knew that football was going to be a big deal, eventually getting the rights to the Giants as well. So they named me the pre and post game host. And I'm told that I'm going to be working with Freeman McNeil, who was one of my favorite players growing up running back at a UCLA. I just loved his running style. And even though the jet teams of that era at some points were just mediocre, he was a part of some of the teams that, that did stand out great defense. And uh, he was a, a linchpin on offense. He had no broadcasting experience whatsoever. The first preseason game is the first time I met him. He comes to the studio about an hour before the show is starting. We chatted up. Uh, We're talking, not even football. We're just talking about our personal lives and trying to get to know one another. And we hit it off. I just felt great about it. I realized we're getting close to airtime. I excused myself to do a little bit of work and then told him to meet me in the studio five minutes before the show begins. We sit down, and I feel like there's a connection there. I'm staring at him. He's staring at me. We're down to two minutes to go before it's time to go on the air. And I looked at him. I said, you okay? You good? 
And he looked back at me, and I'm going to clean it up for our purposes here. But he said, hey, Ian, don't screw me here. <laughs> I said, well, no, I'm not, I'm not going to screw you. I'm going to make you look good. Um, this is going to go really well. And he smiled and nodded, and boom, we were on the air doing it. And it really did resonate with me that this is a guy who had played in front of 75,000 people, was a star in college, was a star in the NFL. And in that moment, he was in an uncomfortable position, unfamiliar territory. And even though I was very young at the time, he looked at me as someone that could be an ally. And it struck me that that's the dynamic. When you're working with former athletes, former coaches, that's what they know. The broadcasting stuff is a little bit out of their normal purview. And some people adjust to it very quickly and some don't. And when push comes to shove, he just wanted to make sure that I was on his side. And I've maintained that mentality my entire career. Working with an analyst, they want to know that you're a team. If they are indeed a former player, former coach, that's what they're accustomed to, being on a team, being collaborative in some way. So I've always put my my whole focus on making sure I'm trying to make my partner look good. If they're funny, great, bring out the comedy. If they're analytical, super, bring out the analysis. Uh, if they're great on the spot with random questions, then let's do that. Whatever it takes, find common ground off the air, and then on the air, it's your job to make this work. It's not their job to adjust to you. So I've tried to be malleable in those situations. And, you know, I'd like to think that that same mentality that I had that day with Freeman is the same one that I've brought to every pairing that I've had. I've had now know 135 different partners over the course of my career. It's like approaching Wilt territory. <laughs> yeah, I'm, go I'm gunning for the record. No. <laughs> do you have a list? Do you write them all down? I do. I do. You know what's funny? And again, Bill Raftery factors in. About a year into my partnership with Bill, we were having lunch one day, and I just asked him, I said, how many different play-by-play -play announcers have you worked with? And he said, oh, that's a great question, Bird. <laughs> he didn't have the answer. He, he took out a napkin, and he started writing the names that he could remember <laughs> on the napkin. And he said, oh, it was uh, Jim Kelly, not the football player, but the former play-by-play -play announcer. He's trying to go through the ESPN guys, but he couldn't remember all of them. Of course and I not. thought to myself, yeah, I said, well, all right, this is a sign. I got to write down who I work with so that I don't look back 20 years, 25, 30 years, and see myself in the same situation that Bill was in trying <laughs> to recall all of these different names. So from that day on, I just started keeping a list and I've maintained it all these years later. Do you have a wish list also? I've never, I've never listed anybody that I'd love to work with. You know, John Madden would have been someone that I think would have been a really interesting dynamic. Uh, I think uh, Al McGuire, the late Al McGuire also would have been interesting because he was just wired a little differently. Of the current guys, Jeff Van Gundy, I just find hilarious. I think he, Mike Breen, and Mark Jackson make a great trio. Uh, I've worked with Mark. I know Mike very well. And, yeah, Jeff was one of those guys that I'd love to do a game with. Uh, but, look, 
my idea of this has always been the same. Whoever you pair me with, I'm going to do everything in my power to get the most out of them and find something of value that the viewer or the listener can latch onto. Do you find these days, and, and let me know if things have changed over the years, that you know, to get to know an analyst and build that chemistry, you've got to ask them questions and, and try to get to know them as a person. Do you find that, and, and I think the two of us are inherently inquisitive and, and curious, but do you find that from the other side it's lacking, that former coaches, former athletes who are so used to being the ones who are constantly asked questions aren't asking the other person questions? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's it's certainly an individual perspective. There are plenty of analysts that I've worked with that have been equally interested in my life and my background, and there have been some that really are not, that they live in their own world. It's a very self-centered world. That's all they know. They were applauded and celebrated as athletes or coaches, and they're not accustomed to necessarily the back and forth. I would tell you that if that's how the analyst you work with is hardwired, then there's probably a limit to what the chemistry can be. The success that I've had with analysts throughout my career are usually the ones where there is a back and forth and where a true friendship is formed. I've heard stories of plenty of broadcast bearings where uh, they didn't really get along off the air, but somehow on the air it was magical. And I find that amazing. I find that unlikely, but I know it happens. And I've had situations where I've gotten along with someone really well off the air, and yet on the air, maybe it didn't quite hit the mark every single time. You know, a lot of it is also based on uh, where you're willing to go on the air. Are you self-deprecating? Are you uh, looking at it from the viewer's point of view, or are you just stuck in your own head of what you find interesting, and you don't really care if the viewer would find it interesting? It's, it's a very delicate dynamic. You don't want to overanalyze it because ultimately it's two people talking. To me, the bottom line is, is a shared conversation. If it's you talk, I talk, you talk, I talk, uh, eventually that's going to get tiring. If it's two people having an actual discussion and they're tagging what the other one says and laughing at the right moments, uh, then usually people can connect with that and feel like they're part of it. it. It does feel more like a community. Knowing your personality, and I don't even know why this question just came into my head, but just talking about laughing and enjoying yourself, and, and you travel so much on an airplane so frequently. When was the last time you laughed out loud watching something or listening to something on an airplane? <laughs> uh, I, I've been watching a lot of stuff because I consume it on these airplanes mm -hmm. and I've gotten away from reading, which is not a good thing. I've, I've got to get back to the reading yeah, thing because your brain can go to mush yep. after a while. But after you do a bunch of games and if you're doing three a week, four a week, five a week, traveling five times a week, sometimes you just want to turn your brain off. I remember vividly prior to having the, the personal uh, screens at your disposal when you were subjected to whatever they were showing on that particular flight. Vividly remember putting on the headset and watching the notebook on a flight. Oh boy! And I'm 
and I'm not a crier. Right? I'm oh, not a natural boy. crier, and I just lost it. Oh, yeah. And the guy next to me was not watching the notebook. Oh. And I, I think he felt I had some kind of mental issue that, uh, that needed to be dealt with. I, I was blubbering in the corner of the plane as this guy was staring at me, uh, not even saying that he was trying to help. I think he was just trying to understand what I was going through. So, yes, uh, there are moments on a plane where uh, you, you don't control your emotions anymore. I, another plane, I have many, many plane stories, as you can imagine, Noah. One that comes to mind, I had done three straight red eyes for CBS, three straight West Coast games, and I was doing Nets games in between. And I, on the third red eye, got home, needed to get home on a Monday, and then I had to fly back out to Houston later that day. And I get on the flight to Houston. I'm not a great sleeper on planes. I'm not one of those automatic plane goes up, fall asleep. It's rare that, that I get any shut eye on a plane. And my body just was falling apart. And finally, on descent, I started to doze off. And I was doing that neck thing where yeah, you know, the yeah. neck goes back, but then you pull it back. You, you know that that's not sure. the norm. Your neck's not supposed to be doing that. So I fall asleep, but I'm awake enough to know that I'm still on a plane and I'm aware of my surroundings. And I hear this noise every 10 seconds. And it's loud enough that it's annoying me, but not loud enough that I want to wake up to see what it is. So I let it go for about a minute. Now two minutes go by and it's constant every 10 seconds. And finally, after two minutes, I said, all right, I've had enough of this. This, this noise is getting very annoying. And I wake up only to realize that the noise was coming from my body. I had lost all <laughs> control of bodily functions. So all you could hear every 10 seconds is, <laughs> and everybody that is surrounding me, including the woman next to me, the guy across the aisle from me, the diagonal person had turned and was concerned for my well-being. Uh, my, and, you know, the person next to me was like, are you okay? And I'm in my, in a pool of drool. I'm like, ah, it's fine. I'm fine. And that, that was not one of my finer moments. Uh, Ian, I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Anytime, Noah. Great talking to you, bud. Ian sets the standard for me, how he handles himself on and off the air, the broadcaster he is, the friend that he is, the way he treats others. He's a true role model. It's also funny that he brought up The Notebook. I was reading it during the summer of 05 in the stands before calling minor league baseball games on the radio, and I am a crier. I'd be alone in the stadium reading, tears rolling down my cheeks, and after about three, four days of that, I stopped because I was emotionally exhausted before doing my actual job. Then I'd just read it at night and cry myself to sleep. Make sure you catch Ian during the NFL season on CBS and Westwood One Radio. And remember what he said about having chemistry with your partner on the air. Please subscribe to this podcast. Take 20 seconds, 20 seconds to click the five-star rating and find 12 words for a review. Could be 10. Then share it with everyone you know. In the roughly 120 episodes of this series, I promise you that there's at least 10 that they'll enjoy. Thanks for taking the time to join us on The Follow-Up. The Follow-Up is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's 
V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W.com. <laughs>